Hello, it's Lee Durrant here again uh, with the, the, the new episode of Vodcast, joined with my co-host, Teresa, again. Um, in this episode, we're speaking to, um, we're spending time actually with, with Vera Loftus, who is Salesforce royalty. So you're, you're in for a bit of a treat as she talks us through her career at Blue Wolf, where she rose up to be the managing director for the UK, Blue Wolf, before they got acquired. Uh, and basically how she's getting on now through COVID and, and all of that, and also um, her plans for the future with her new company and what she thinks is going to happen in the, uh, in the ecosystem. So um, here we go. So, hi everyone for another episode of, of Rodcast with me, Lee Durrant and Teresa. Uh, say hello. 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 And today we have a proper Salesforce royalty um, with uh, with Vera Loftus. Hi, Vera. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for saying yes. I'm, I'm, I'm We're honoured. And honoured. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we've... Well, look, I should tell everybody, I probably would do this anyway, but um, we're in the middle of a, a, we're still in the middle of the COVID thing. We're in the middle of lockdown. So this is a, a, a chat about your career, obviously, in Salesforce, which is going to inspire a lot of people, I think. But, you know, it'll also have a, a COVID related lockdown theme to it, I would have thought. Absolutely. Because we're all in that, aren't we? So um, if you're, how are things for you in the current climate then before we sort of delve into our questions? Yeah. Um, okay. Hey, surviving, you know, can't complain, really, aside from the fact that I would I would like to leave my house um, and do more than grocery shop. But that's just me being selfish. So, yeah, everybody's happy, healthy. So we haven't killed each other yet. So I think we're all right. How's your lockdown puppy? Cause I, I to ask, I'm staring at her as we speak. She's got this. Um, I'll have to send you a picture. Lee. It's hilarious. There's this little kind of bench thing in front of my desk in the bedroom that looks out over the um over the window and she sits there all day kind of just patrolling making sure that birds are not trying to come into the house you know no one's running too fast uh, so yeah she's a good little guard dog oh bless oh <laughs> and it's it's most unglamorous at the moment because she's sunbathing in a, a shaft of sunlight but with the legs wide open to the room. Nice. so <laughs> I, I i could send you a picture of that as well but i'm <laughs> I'm envious. It's the beauty of this lockdown thing, isn't it? And I know we touched on it in, the, in one of the previous lo- um, podcasts that you were kindly on, the, uh, where it, it humanizes people a little bit, doesn't it? Because you're allowed to have your pet walk in on you mid Zoom call and what have you. So, have you had any embarrassing moments with, with the, your little puppy? Or is it oh my god, all the time. <laughs> I, I was on a call this morning uh, with a client, and she had uh, she has this little like tiny tennis ball because her mouth is quite small and she gets it trapped in places and she had it under the bed and like just was making the biggest racket but the uh, the funniest thing she does is she um she steals the girls have this tickle me elmo that they got years ago that they just have no interest in anymore but sheila absolutely loves it it's like her favorite thing in the whole world and she'll go find it you hide it obviously because it's loud um but she can always find it and she knows how to push the the feet and the hands to make it laugh and tickle and um yeah so half the time when you're on a call you're like i'm I'm so sorry about the tickle me elmo (laughs) take it to the other room (laughs) what's how his name you say sheila yeah her name's sheila named after any famous sheila she well she's actually named after a jamie t song so kind of a, a fictitiously famous. Teresa and I now pretending to know who you're going on about. No, I've got no idea. 
It's because I'm so cool and hip, you guys. <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll send you the A track. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Lord, we, we've clearly been in lockdown. Well <laughs> <laughs> so before we embarrass ourselves anymore with that, we'll, let's talk about your career, if you don't mind, up until COVID, and then we'll do a bit. We'll delve into that. Um, so yeah, to, what we normally ask, I suppose, is the obvious thing: is how you got into Salesforce, because yours is a an interesting career, I think. So if you don't mind, just giving us the, yeah. the you know the original how you got into it and all that. Of course. And, and I, I'm probably interesting in that I fell into it as <laughs> uh, the easiest way to describe it. But I, so when I was in school, I thought I was going to be this like very glamorous kind of marketeur PR person. Um, so all of my internships in college were, I had internships with um, like publishing companies doing PR and I did marketing for a magazine and it all seemed, you know, fairly, fairly glamorous at the time. Um, and then when I got out of school, I was a marketing coordinator for a not-for-profit, which was slightly less glamorous, I'll be honest. Um, and it's actually quite funny because at the time, I didn't realize, you know, obviously not-for-profits work in a very lean environment. Um, and I kind of came on, you know, young and spunky and, and ready to do. I had my little marketing campaigns that I had printed out and I wanted to do all of this ambitious stuff. And when I started the role, it was kind of described to me that this is marketing plus. And I was like, okay, marketing plus, that sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. And what they meant by marketing plus was marketing plus customer service. <laughs> so oh, we, <laughs> we ran an alumni club in, in New York and um, there was a part of the the appeal for being a membership of the club was um, it had like a tiny hotel, I think 12 rooms. So half of my job was giving people tours of the hotel and like answering the call when they ran out of towels and things like that. And so it kind of got to a point where I thought, I've, I've probably delivered enough towels. I don't really think I'm doing, you know, the marketing as such. Um, and so I was just looking for a change. And, and at that point in time, I kind of didn't really know where to go from there. I was um, I was an English major in school, so I already was confused about what I wanted to do when I when I grew up. Um, and then when this kind of marketing job didn't really pan out to be exactly what I was hoping for, I kind of just started looking around randomly. Um, and I was really lucky in that my cousin was a consultant. Um, for not necessarily in the Salesforce space. I think he worked for Anderson at the time, but he kind of said to me, you know, you should get into consulting. And I, I went to a school where consulting was like something that the really smart kids did. And so I had never really considered myself as part of that kind of tier of, of uh, hires, if you will. Um, but he, he was lovely. He broke it down for me. He's like, no, he's like, you know, consulting is just problem solving. Like it's, it's somebody who can you know, get into what people really need, you know, can get people to open up about, um, you know, how they need to operate and then try to help them do that in a better way. Um, and so we kind of had a couple of, of conversations about it. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. Um, and he had put me in touch with Blue Wolf. Um, and so I, I interviewed at, at that time with Eric. Um, and I remember I was so scared because I thought there was going to be like all of these consulting questions, like I had read online, you know, that they were going to ask me like all of these strange things. And to be fair, he did ask me, he did ask me one, uh, which was how many ping pong balls I thought there were in America. And oh, I had, okay. yeah, I, I had prepared for how many tennis balls were on an airplane, but I hadn't prepared for that one. Um, but I had kind of, you know, realized that it wasn't luckily, thank God it wasn't about mass. It was about how you work the problem through. Cause I mean, I, I went back, I think, and Googled the number, and I was about 50 times off. 
Um, so luckily that didn't keep me from getting the job. Um, but yeah, from there, I kind of just fell into it. I remember my first day at Blue, I hadn't heard of Salesforce and I started and they put me straight on to an admin course. And I think I came home that first day and thought, oh my God, I've done something wrong. What have I done? Like, <clears throat> I didn't understand what people were talking about at all. Because this, at the time, Blue Wolf did, um, you know, official admin training for Salesforce. And so there were a lot of partners in the room. You know, there were people who obviously had worked on Salesforce for a long time. And so they're kind of asking these questions. And they might as well have been speaking a foreign language because I was utterly confused. Um, and and is, it took... Uh, sorry to interrupt you. This is... Yeah. Can you timeline this? Is this around 2007? I'm, I'm looking at your LinkedIn. Yeah. Yes, it must have been. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been. Um, you have an idea of how, you know, how at the beginning. How, of how long um, ago? How old yeah. I am? Thanks, Lee. How old you are? Well, yes. Sorry, mate. <laughs> I was 15 <laughs> then. Young. Um, 15. Very young. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was basically child labor. So that's how it <laughs> was. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was, this is a good testament to, to Salesforce, a little shout out here. By the time I finished that week, because the admin course back then was a week, um, I came home on the Friday and I was like, I get this. This is great. <laughs> I could go do this. Um, and it was a completely different kind of, yeah, attitude towards it. Like in that, in that week, my perspective on not only Salesforce, but I just think on technology completely shifted, um, which was amazing. And, and that was kind of the first moment where I thought, yeah, I, I think this is going to be a good move. Um, oh, good. That's my, I was usually my next question. So that, that was when the penny dropped and you thought, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is me. Yeah. Which is, which is funny because if you had asked me when I was younger, you know, what I thought I was going to be when I grew up and you had told me it was going to be A, a consultant and B, in technology, I would have laughed at you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I, when people who, who work with me can tell you, like, I'm not necessarily the most tech savvy person. Like, I struggle on a Zoom call, but I do know how to configure Salesforce. So, yeah, I don't know what that says about me. But um, that was definitely, that was the beginning, yeah, the beginning of what, will inevitably be the rest of my career i think in this space and would you then say you mentioned eric um eric it was it had a had an interesting policy early days blew off in that he didn't look to hire experienced consultants it's no. what i've heard so obviously absolutely that's absolutely true yeah. we um i remember because i was i was quite young and quite you know green um back then and i remember my first day on the job eric came up to me and he was like so what do you think you're going to do for us? I was like, oh my God, I was hoping somebody was going to tell me what I was going to do because I have no idea. I don't know what you people do. Um, and I, it did take a, a little while for Blue Up to work out kind of what to do with me just because I was I was so out of my depths, I think. Um, but it was interesting actually because we, Eric took a chance on a lot of young kids at that time. Um, and it's a lot down to kind of, I think, what you make of it. You know, I think those companies are amazing for the people who are self-motivated and kind of can just work things out. Because remember, because no one know, you know, what to do with me. I was doing database entry for my first couple of months. Like I was, we had a system called OpenAir, which was for time tracking. And I was just literally going through and cleaning up data and calling PMs and saying, you know, you've got two hours left on your project. Is that an accident? Do you want to close it out? Um, and then I quickly realized, like, I, I hate this. <laughs> I, I cannot continue to do this. Um, and so I would loan myself out to 
the other kind of architects and, and salespeople. And I would just say, look, take me on your meeting. I'll go, I'll take your notes. I'll do all of the stuff you don't want to do. I'll do all of your config, all the kind of grunt work. Um, and then eventually that turned into a role. Um, and then that was kind of the birth for us, at least, of, of what the business analyst role became. Mm. Um, and then my job in the early days, I, I ran something called BA University, which was all about, you know, trying to repeat that process in an accelerated way. So, you know, how do you take kids either early in their careers or, or right out of school and turn them into productive consultants by teaching them, you know, how to configure, how to take notes, you know, how to how to act in a meeting, all of that useful stuff, uh, which was quite fun because you did you did really get to see people in the span of six months, you know, almost become a completely different person, um, which is quite inspiring. It's, a, it's a, I suppose, an unusual way, but a very good way of doing it, because it's almost like the people that are self-motivated like you, where you're just thinking, I cannot do this data entry role for the rest of my life. It spurs you on to want to go and learn more and do more. And I suppose mm -hmm. that's from a consultancy point of view, you want those people that are motivated to go out and, and do that and seek out the projects and the challenges. So it's a, it's Definitely. a really foundation. I mean, just out of interest, do you remember sort of like the first Salesforce project that you kind of you know, managed to get your teeth into, does, does that sort of stick in your mind at all? Yeah, it's funny, I can, I can tell you about almost every project I've been on, I'm, I get quite personal with them, which is, which is not advice I would give to anybody else. Um, but I can remember my kind of first big deal, it was, it was funny, actually, because we went through a process, uh, it was quite a big oil and gas company, and, and they had a lot of kind of due diligence, as you would imagine. Yeah. But I think they interviewed seven or eight pms and at the time you know i was probably maybe six months into that role specifically um and they they'd interviewed everybody by phone thank god for me um because i looked about 12 and they went through you know put everybody through the ringer kind of came out on the other side and then told eric okay so so we've picked vera to run the project and he was like okay all right. And I remember we, we kicked off in our offices in, in New York and they kind of came <laughs> and you could tell the shock on their face when they realized who they had picked. <laughs> like The smile on Eric's face when he saw their reaction was hilarious. Um, but, you know, to be fair, they, they had done massive amounts of due diligence. I think we had to interview two or three times. So you know, they couldn't really go back and say, well, we didn't we didn't want a kid. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, it was really intense. It was probably, it went on for a year, which back then, you know, Salesforce projects just did not last that long, but it, it was a fairly complex build and it had a lot of, um, it had a lot of integration. So it had a whole MDM process they were putting in place. Um, they had a system called Nirvana Soft, which I'm not even sure exists anymore, which was their kind of backend ERP, but the uh, the complexity with it is um, an oil and gas, you know, you, you offer a price and that price is worth trading for about two hours. So the whole kind of system between the sales team, the trading desk, the back office, like everybody kind of lining up behind these numbers and, and these volume predictions um, is quite intense. And so it has to work. And like, if that integration goes down, you know, the whole process is, is disrupted. Um, and so it was, it was good because it kind of, it threw me into the deep end in terms of managing a big project. Um, but it also taught me a lot about integration, which I think in terms of kind of advice I would give, I think if you look at the Salesforce world, I think it's really quite easy, especially as a PM to kind of 
stay at a surface level. You know, you're managing tasks, you're managing activities and, and people, and you kind of are are not really diving into anything um, in any depth. But that project for me taught me, actually, if you really understand how this works as a project manager, your life becomes a lot easier. Because from then on, I knew so much about data and integration, and we had to do all of this kind of custom development to get these things to work, um, that I could go on to any project and know if something was going to be off. Like, you're telling me that's going to take you two weeks. I know there's never in a million years going to take you two weeks. Um, so I do think that's a, a good piece of advice for people. You know, don't, especially in the world of Salesforce, where everything is so intertwined, you know, don't get stuck in your role. Be inquisitive yeah. about how all of this fits together. Because um, regardless of, of what you do on a project, you know, it will it will benefit you for sure. Cool. Mm. Absolutely. And would you, I mean, going back to uh, picking, picking on the, the, the first project, is there a particular project that you can think of in your early career that was a, was a, was a real challenge or would, would it be the same one? I mean, they were all challenges, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, which is the exciting thing about being a consultant, right? If this, if this was easy, everybody would do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that one was definitely, that was a challenge for me outside of the technical space, just because they had a, a third party PM, which is, I think, always a difficult situation when you've got a contractor who's managing the client. Um, and in the early days, uh, this woman was, was called Deb. I was really scared of her because she was quite intense. And I was thinking, <laughs> oh my God, she's going to find out that I don't actually know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and it took us a little while to kind of get in the rhythm of things, but it ended up being one of those situations where she probably taught me 90% of what I know about being a PM. She was amazing at her job. She was re she had really high expectations. She had really, you know, she wanted you to perform well, um, but she was willing to put in the work, which I quite frankly was surprised about, right? Cause she, you know, she didn't work for Blue Wolf. She didn't owe me anything. Um, but she did spend quite a lot of time just refining, you know, how much I prepped for meetings, you know, how detailed my agendas were, little things that, you know, you think in the course of a project, does that really matter? Um, and she would kind of hone in on these things with me and and she was quite detail oriented and, and it made me realize, you know, by kind of following her methodology a little bit, everything got easier as time went on. Um, and I, and yeah. Kudos to Deb because I I should call her and just say thank you because say do you keep in touch with her? I so I don't I should um, but yeah it was definitely one of those moments I think because you you always think mentors come you know from within your industry or within your organization and that was one of those moments where she kind of took me under her wing you know with um, with no questions asked and yeah gave me gave me more knowledge than I could have ever hoped to gain out of a, a single project. It's funny you say that because one of the questions is, is like, do you, do you consider that you have a, a mentor or a role model? And I know there's probably never just one. So it's quite interesting that I, I would have assumed it would have been some senior person at Blue Wolf, but, uh, and it, it probably still is, but then you, you obviously have difficult customers here and there that, that don't, don't even realise that they're possibly being role models that um, for you. Is yeah, that completely. Well, I, and I actually think it's a good thing to consider, right, you know, where you look for mentors, because I think you're right, I, you know. I have a ton um, and I've been really, really lucky, especially, you know, with, with people like Jolene who read, uh, who led the delivery team at Blue Wolf, you know, that she was very similar to Deb, right? She was patient with me. She coached me through tons of stuff. She advocated for me, but I think that's kind of the natural 
way people look, right? I look within, mm-hmm. you know, I look at my hiring manager or I look at a peer of mine or, you know, somebody within kind of the four walls of my organization. But, and, and, and I also think mentorship doesn't have to be this big thing, right? I don't have to necessarily go to you and say, Lee, can you be my mentor? And, you know, I want to call with you for 30 minutes every week. You know, yeah. there can be kind of moments of mentorship. And I think, people would be better suited to kind of seek those in their daily lives as opposed to trying to always kind of create something semi-unnatural outside of it. Um, and a project is a, is a great place to do it. You you know, you live and die with these people every day and you're quite often in really difficult and stressful situations. And to be able to, to look at a client and say, look, you know, I want feedback in this process. You know, do you think I handled that well? What do you think that we, you know, we or I could be doing better? I do think is, is a, a moment we sometimes miss because we're so afraid to to show vulnerability to the client. But actually, at the end of the day, you know, we're all people, and everybody wants feedback, and everybody wants to feel like they're progressing professionally and personally. And I think we'd be surprised to see how many clients would be open to that type of a relationship. Mm. Absolutely, and, and and I suppose role models really, as you said, they they come in all different shapes and sizes, and and you know they don't they come from sometimes the most surprising places as well, um, and they don't have to be within your industry just to to have a good influence on you. It's just more I, I find role models can be very situational, mm-hmm. so depending on what situation you're in, it's how do you want to handle that, and then you'll look for the person who you think does that very well. Um, so yeah, they, it doesn't have to be an official thing, like you say. No, this lady no. you refer to, who is a, her name escaped me. Sorry, she previously no, did she? No, no, no. <laughs> just like, no. just like. And I don't mean to make your head swell, but obviously, in 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 this job that I do, I speak to a lot of people, and and you, the, the, the amount of people you've influenced over the years, you probably wouldn't even know it. Um, Oh, see, I think I'm a terrible mentor. It's funny, actually, you say that because people ask me all the time, like, oh, you know, do you want to, can you be my mentor? I'm like, I'm happy to do it, but I am really rubbish at it, just as a warning. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I never, you know, you, you feel a little bit of pressure to give people kind of career advice. And I always feel like people are kind of looking for like this magic answer that I definitely don't have. Um, so that's good to know that I haven't absolutely screwed it up. No, but it's like I say, it's not official. You're not, you're, if, you, if, it's, if they make it like a, like you say, every, every Friday for half an hour, we've got to sit and talk and you've got to give me pearls of wisdom. It just doesn't feel natural. But it, I'm sure those droplets, you know, you, you're passing that, that wisdom without knowing it in, in different situations, much like that lady you've just talked about. So um, that's obviously your, your way of doing it rather than an official meeting where you, you know, sit down and here comes the magic yeah i mean (laughs) it's only natural that people will admire the you know other people that are doing the job really well so the fact that you're being admired by the people around you means that you are doing a very good job and and that in itself is feedback um Mm. sometimes we don't often look for that sort of soft side of feedback it's you know you need that constant reinforcement from perhaps a line manager or something but there's there's other ways that you can get it and that's very interesting well, I have to ask you. Um, uh, it's something that I forgot to put in, our, in in the notes that you prepared for. But do you do you suffer from um, I forgot what it's called, Teresa? Sorry, imposter <laughs> syndrome. Where because of the way you started in Salesforce, does it, is there still an element of imposter syndrome with yourself? Someone oh my god, yeah. Okay. I think I've suffered that my whole life, though. Like nothing to do necessarily with with Salesforce. It's funny. I um, I was telling my husband really early on. Like, um, my biggest fear in life is that um people will find out that I'm actually not that smart. Yeah. 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 And, and I've all like, and it's, you know, in some ways it's actually quite good because it's what drives me. You know, I, yeah. 
I made straight A's in school, not because I was smart, because I was afraid that people would realize I wasn't smart. So I just worked really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I've always, I've always, in, in every aspect of, of my life, I'm always, I'm always either thinking I'm doing it wrong or feeling like I think I'm doing it right, but that's only just because, you know, I'm faking it to some level. Like, I don't think anybody walks into a room and just feels super, I mean, maybe people do, right? And that's amazing for them. But, you know, walking into a room and just being like, yep, I know everything there is to know. Ask me anything. Like, no, of course not. I'm scared. (laughs) The thing is, though, I don't think anyone would want to admit that, would they? Because they're they're opening themselves up to challenges, isn't they? If they they walk into a room and say, I know everything, there's always going to be someone else who wants to catch them out. So (laughs) you'd be surprised, surprised, and, and, you know, I kind of thought you would say that because I know you well enough, but I think people that don't know you and, and would look at your profile and, and be intimidated by that would be surprised to hear you say that. But you'd, be, you'd also be surprised at how many people say that to me. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That you look at it and think you are a legend in this space. Why are you, why are you worried? Um, no, it's funny. Somebody asked me recently because we do this... Um, we do the Solution Junkies live show every week on LinkedIn. And, and somebody was like, oh, my God, you're such a great facilitator. Like, it's just so natural for you. And I was like, are you joking? Like, I, I am sweating we can't see it you know because luckily like you can't see it on the camera but you know I'm sweating before I go on to those things like I am nervous every time I present I'm nervous and I think that's probably one of the things um Julie who works for us said that she's like I'm really surprised at that knowing knowing you and knowing how well you do in those situations she's like I'm so surprised to learn that you're nervous but I think I think it's good I think when you aren't nervous and you know you become complacent that's when you really have to worry well, it, it gets the old-fashioned adrenaline going, doesn't it? And let's yeah. face it, you need that in those situations because you just you just don't know what situation you're walking into. Well, um, and if you're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, you're doing it wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, if there's not points in the week where you're like, really gotta, really gotta hope this goes well, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Then, yeah, then what are you doing it for? Well, all you can do is bring the best version of yourself to that situation, can't you? And if it goes tits up, then you know at least you tried. Isn't there um, something about? When you get older, the nervousness is actually something that when you're a kid, you consider to be more excitement. Oh, and it's gosh, just yeah. somehow life has just made you nervous, not excited. Well, we're kind of constantly, in a way, as an adult, told how to behave and react. Whereas kids, yeah. everything's just exciting. You know, they, they walk along a, a cliff edge and it will be exciting. Whereas adults, it's like, no, you can't go there. Um, because we're told how we should behave and react so I, I often say to people if they're, they're feeling really anxious and nervous of, often it's a, exactly the same symptoms as excitement but their yeah. brain is telling them to be a little bit fearful um, but that that in itself is a whole different podcast <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to sort of psychoanalyze you on it on it <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously, we're still early in your career here, chatting away about that, you know, early days. But but your rise at Blue Wolf was phenomenal, wasn't it? I mean, it's it certainly looks like so. it's outside <laughs> Tell us about that, because yeah, and, and you know, all, all the way through to obviously re- relocating over over to the UK at some point. Um, but yeah, how did that happen? I mean, to be honest, I think because a lot of people ask this about if you look on paper, kind of my career progression, it was it was super accelerated. A lot of people are like, oh, what's the um, you know, what's the secret sauce? Like, how did you do it? It's actually not down to me. I think that is a massive testament to Blue Wolf, I would say, and to to Eric and Jolene's vision at the time. You know, it was very much a a company that empowered people. 
it empowered people every day on projects and it empowered people to accelerate their careers and it trusted you to be an adult. You know, that was kind of the the baseline, right? Until until you lost that trust, everybody just assumed we're all adults here. Everybody's going to get their stuff done. Everybody's going to be a rock star. And, you know, you prove me different and then, yeah, I'll have to micromanage you. But mm-hmm. until then, you know, you're kind of left to, to really operate as you see fit, which, you know, for somebody at my stage in the career meant you could just put it in. Um, and I remember in the early days, um, I had a really depressing 20s because I just worked all the time. <laughs> and I, I want, I want, I'm quite career driven. And at that point in my life, I wanted to grow fast. Um, and so I remember I used to take on multiple projects. Like I would bill 100 hours in a week easy just because I would, I'd have two full time projects and then I would do playbooks like training materials at the weekend because you can kind of just, you know, watch TV and screenshot and it's not as kind of mind. Um, mind consuming um but yeah so i i was just really set that once i had gotten into that environment that i was going to maximize it um and i just i would take any project i would take any role which i think is also another good piece of advice like i was a pm at the time but you know if somebody needed somebody to run a training session i would do it i was kind of the gopher for everything um and i just became this really good utility player um which was great for Blue Wolf because, uh, you know, in a pinch, I could always do whatever kind of was needed. But for me, it was amazing because it meant that I, you know, without realizing it, was learning to to operate in every aspect of a project. And I think that's probably later on in my career what helped me accelerate even further because there, you know, there wasn't stuff I didn't quite understand how it worked. I had I'd done everything. Um, but yeah, for me, it was about... How hard are you willing to work and how and how motivated are you? Um, and Blue Wolf was really amazing about recognizing that um, and seeing that and giving you the opportunities to grow. Um, and I remember, I forget what, how long I was in New York, but I moved, you know, from a, from BA University and, and kind of managing a, a small team of grads into a delivery director role really quickly. And I, you know, was managing a whole team of, you know, 50 or 60 people at at one point in time um, across the whole of the West Coast. And it, you know, there was never a question in Blue Wolf in terms of, you know, do you have the right years of experience? Do you have this, you know, do you check these boxes to to put you forward for a role? They they kind of looked at everybody on an individual basis and and made the right decision by people, which I think is Mm. amazing, but quite difficult to do. You know, I understand because I just thought that that's how all companies should operate. And then getting into the world of IBM, you kind of realize like actually you can't do that you know you're too big like it doesn't it doesn't work on a grand scale um but i do i do appreciate how how amazing they were back then you know because it was it was a well-oiled machine but it was a very personal well-oiled machine if that makes sense Mm. um and yeah like if i had gone into accenture or deloitte or anything in my early career i would have never been able to do what i had done there's just so many you know, barrier, not barriers necessarily in a bad way, but there are natural steps you take, you know, yeah. to get to the next level. Whereas in, in Blue Wolf, it was just prove yourself and we'll put you in the role. Yeah. So you could carve your own career out really and just do it your way rather than the, you know, traditional, you followed this path. Perfect um, storm, isn't it? Of, of, of you obviously having a, you know, very, very good work ethic and, and, and wanting to just say yes to everything and then, uh, and then giving you that platform. Um, 
which it's still, you know, very impressive to see in the, in the t- short space of time from the young 12-year-old girl, as you said, that walked in there and um, didn't know what they were doing, to being the managing director at a certain point. The, the, the MD role then, is that you? Oh, UK, I'm looking at your profile now. So you, at a certain point, they, they must have said to you, do you want to go to the UK? Well, so interestingly, I so I studied abroad in London um, when I was at school. So I had always wanted to come back um, and had kind of been looking for a way to do that. And at the time, I was managing, I was managing the West Coast. Yeah, so I was delivery director for the West, um, but I I was angling more towards a sales role. So I was going on more sales cycles. I was much more kind of interested in that part of the business and understanding how, you know, these two things came together. Um, and then when this job popped up, we had we had a London office. Um, I think we had had it for maybe a year, um, but it was quite small and it was kind of just something that was happening. There wasn't necessarily a big kind of strategy around it. And it was one of those moments, I think, that Eric kind of thought, okay, look, we either need to to do this properly and and use it as a, as a growth to international expansion or we need to stop doing it, you know, because at some point we're going to start screwing up projects and we're going to get into situations with customers that we don't want to be in. And so we had this conversation about moving over and and looking after that office, which I was delighted with because it gave me two things, brought me to London and it gave me the role that I really wanted, which was being able to manage both sales and delivery, you know, in a, in a single space. Um, and to be honest, it was, it was partly about getting back to being small because at that time in Blue Wolf, we, you know, we were growing massively in the US and the teams were getting big and the projects were getting big. And I was quite excited to get back to a small team where, you know, you can have a bigger impact and, you know, you can kind of touch every project that, you know, the team's working big, on. I, mean, I'm, 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 I can sort of remember those days, um, but how big were they in London at that point? Oh my God, we maybe like five people, four people. It was tiny. Yeah. It was tiny. We were in a little Regis office out in Reading. Oh God, I remember oh, yes. that. Because Penny yeah, was, yeah. yeah, that's right. Because did you, uh, you took over from that, the, the person who was in charge at that point? I think they moved yes. on. And, okay, cool. Wow. Yes, that was very early days. Yeah, See, it was. You, you're <laughs> effectively responsible then for taking it from five people in Reading to whatever it became before IBM. So, yeah. Well done. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks. <laughs> Amazing <laughs> job. Yeah. <laughs> it was good fun to be fair. I love yeah. I loved that that whole part of my career. It was um it was a lot of hard lessons, you know, because it you were away from the mothership and there were certain things that Eric and the team couldn't help you with just because the market was so different. And like I remember um my first sales meeting, I we had gone I forget where it was now, but I had obviously screwed up the the directions and thought well we'll just take a taxi and i thought it was in london and i had read the address wrong and it was like somewhere out in maybe milton Keynes. it was really far <laughs> and like we got in the taxi and black yes black cab <laughs> cost a fortune yeah. and, and we're about half an hour into the journey and I thought, oh my goodness. And I start Googling and realize we are far. I had to call the prospect and be like, I'm so sorry. We are going to be, we are going to be late. Please still take this meeting. But there were a lot of those kind of comical disasters in those early days where you think I'm obviously an American out of my depth. <laughs> yeah. 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 She know things in London. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh man. That's brilliant. So, I mean, that, that whole 
growth? I mean, taking it from five up to however many there were when IBM took over. I mean, how did you sort of, I suppose, in a way, manage that whole process? Because that's some massive growth. I mean, going from a very small, intimate team to suddenly people that, yeah. are, you know, are not around you all the time. I mean, how did you manage that? It was it was quite difficult. And, and we kind of went through periods of growth. Um, and I think one of the, the challenges, which is definitely something I learned through that whole experience, is you have to be comfortable with how fast you're growing. Because I think, especially in the Salesforce ecosystem, there's a lot of pressure to hurry up and grow. Like I remember even back in those days, it's like, you guys need to hire more people. You need to, you need to be bigger. And it's not actually about that. It's about as an organization, what you can cope with, you know, we say this to our customers all the time, right? Don't, don't create a change you can't manage. Um, but for us in those days, it was really important to make sure that we were bringing people on that same journey with us, um, you know, and we weren't just hiring for the sake of hiring. And, you know, we weren't going after every deal and, and putting ourselves at, you know, massive margin risks and things like that, um, which, you know, you did see in other kind of startups at the time. Um, but for us, it was it was periods of growth, and I think, you know, we had we had lots of ups and downs, especially on the sales side, right? Because I think that's the difficulty. You know, you can you can teach people how to configure Salesforce, you can teach people how to be a good consultant. It's a bit harder to teach people how to sell services. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our early days, we kind of made a mistake of going out and hiring product people, which you know. Is a, is a somewhat natural thing. Um, and then thinking, okay, well, we'll just teach them how to sell a project. And it is such a different world that I think had I been a more experienced sales manager, I probably would have been better at helping people make that transition. Uh, but I wasn't. And because I had kind of come from delivery and grown up on that side, like it was hard for me to be empathetic. Like I didn't understand what they didn't understand. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, we definitely had some some faults over the years in terms of kind of how we grew. Um, but I think, you know, the important piece for us was all around culture. You know, mm-hmm. how do you grow sustainably, grow profitably, bring people on the journey with you and not lose the heart of why people are here? Because at the end of the day, you know, you join a consulting organization because of the people, right? If the people yeah. are tomorrow, you don't have anything left. Um, and, and you know, you're quite, I think in any consulting organization you're quite demanding of what you ask of those resources right projects are hard you get into situations where stuff goes wrong you've got go lives you know you're asking people to work you know sometimes nights and weekends and people are only willing to pull that hard if they understand you know the direction of travel and and they believe in the kind of greater good of of what you're doing Um, and so that was really important for us is you know how do you kind of keep this kind of family culture going uh, while you grow um, and not not necessarily just start hiring loads of of random people yeah, did you yeah. did you follow the model that that you you know obviously were successful in in, in america in, in terms of it's not about ticking boxes how many years experience you've got it's it, you know giving people like the young vera opportunities mm-hmm. to, to if they say yes and they want to get stuck in and do things you'll give them the opportunities did you follow that sort of Definitely. For, this is gonna this is gonna sound terrible because it's gonna sound slightly unprofessional. But you know, a lot of my hiring style is: do I like you, and do I believe that you can work hard? Because actually, everything else, I can teach you. You know what I mean? If you don't know Salesforce, I can teach you that. If you don't know consulting, we can teach you that. It's about can you can you fit the dynamic of the group? Right? Are you gonna pull us forward, or are you gonna draw us back? Because I think that's a really important. Mm 
piece of the overall dynamic. You know, you hire somebody with the wrong cultural fit or the wrong DNA, and it drags the whole rest of the team down. Um, And then, you know, do do I think that you're motivated to learn? Um, Because you can teach people anything, but only if they want to be taught. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I, am... People, I think, are that's one of the areas people are often surprised when they work with me for the first time when they see me in an interview and they're like, "You didn't ask him about this," and I'm like, "Because yeah, I don't care about that. <laughs> I I care about you know what what motivates people and and whether or not you know we think that they're going to be a good fit for the team." It's funny because as a recruiter, obviously, which we are, that's what we do. You you do spend your life looking at job specs and CVs and thinking, oh, that matches. And then and then you know you you, you can introduce someone to Vera and and she'll hire them and you'll you'll wonder why in that respect if you know what I mean because you, you'll look mm-hmm. at the job spec and the CV. <clears throat> excuse me, and think, well, this, that doesn't why why is she taking that person? I'm not the other person. <laughs> but now that's answered it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you want to say something? No. But that no, it's that's, I've just written them questions down. So I think I've just changed my interview style with with when we're hiring. Well, and I think especially in the world of Salesforce, when you look at CVs, and, and this is part of the the issue with how kind of the partner ecosystem has, has been built, I think, to a certain extent. But, you know, everybody's an architect. Everybody, like, you can go out tomorrow and get a certification. It doesn't necessarily mean you know what you're doing or you can do the job. And so, to a certain extent, you have to throw the CV out a little bit, um, just because CVs often tend to be an extrapolation of, yeah. of yeah. what, you know, the actual kind of core skill set is. Um, so, yeah, we get that all the time where you read somebody's CV and you're like, wow, this person sounds amazing. And then you meet them and you think, mm-hmm. actually, you know, do you do you have any experience? You might have 17 certifications, but can I put you in front of a client? Like, that's a very different question. Um, and it would actually be part of my advice to people in this you know, growing in this ecosystem is practice. Do you know what I mean? I know that sounds silly, but yes, listen to the modules, get the get the certs. But, you know, a lot of what we did in the early days um, in interviewing in Blue Wolf is we, we'd give people fake scenarios and we'd make them build them out. We'd make people draw out a data model. Like, you know, take a real life scenario, Google a company and see if you can, you know, create a dev org and build out what you think they need. Like that's how you kind of work through some of the intangibles in, in mm-hmm. how the application works. You know, as you look at Salesforce, everything is amazing on the surface, but it's it's actually, can you solve a problem inside the system, you know, when, when you're given one? Um, so yeah, hands-on, get in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love, it. Love it. So, I mean, coming back to you for a second and um, I suppose more about your career, really, but what, what's sort of the, been the biggest challenges that you've experienced so far in your career? I think, I mean, definitely moving to London. That was a big, it's funny for me because I kind of naively thought, well, I've done these roles, you know, I've been in the Salesforce ecosystem a long time. Like, it's going to be great. Like, it's going to be the same as as here, except, you know, more fun because I'm in London. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think I completely underestimated the, the difference in dynamics. Like, just buyers on this side of the pond are so much different than they are in the States. Like in the U S you do a lot of pitching, you know what I mean? From a sales perspective, you know, and it's funny, like looking back on it, you know, we've got all, we used to have all these kind of pitch certifications and you have to go through this elaborate process to learn how to pitch. Um, And then you got here and you think, took me a little bit to realize people don't want you to pitch to them. (laughs) That that is the opposite of what they want. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's quite condescending. Um, People want to understand 
fundamentally how this is going to work and they want to trust that you've done this before and, and that when things get really difficult, you know, you've got a way out of, of solving that. Um, so it, it was definitely a culture shock, I think, from a professional standpoint. And there's just so much that is different about hiring, right? Like in the US, you know, it's at will employment. You can hire and fire people for no reason at all. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite it's quite a different dynamic when, when your staff is in that situation versus, you know, here where you've got to be much more conscious when you're hiring somebody and, and managing them through that probation period and, and understanding, you know, what their rights are, what your rights are. Like there was definitely some hiring mistakes I made in, in the early days that I look back on and think, had I actually understood how the employment process in the UK worked, I, w- I would have done stuff completely differently. Yeah. yeah. What about, what about if we can move forward to the, the moment that you found out then that IBM were going to buy you guys? What did that feel like? And I mean, the massive change, I imagine. Of, of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd be interested for people to listen to that because... It's, it's happened, Blue were one of the first, weren't they, to be bought in that respect back in the day when, when those things happened a lot. Oh, actually, it's still happening, isn't it? Yeah, so it is, yeah. It feel like to be the leader of that, or certainly one of the leaders, of course, in terms of globally, one of the leaders in the UK, the leader. Well, what's that like? To be honest, I I was quite scared. And this is just on a, on a personal level more because in, in my early days, I had done a stint um, working on VC projects where you, you quite often, you know, saw these VC companies go in, buy these companies um, and kind of rip a bunch of stuff out and, and turn it upside down. And so my experience to date to that point with acquisitions was not a pretty one. You know what I mean? Like I had kind of seen the nasty side of how these things worked. And so I had just naively thought that's how this is going to go and so I was quite scared that like okay we're gonna they're gonna bring us in and they're gonna rip us apart um and so I think I was bracing myself for it to be yeah a nasty experience and and it and it wasn't you know I think every acquisition is is difficult right you've got it's like two families coming together you know you kind of work out like who's going to brush their teeth in the bathroom first and, you know, (laughs) stumble over you know the fact that you don't like that the other person doesn't wash the dishes um but it was, yeah, it was it was painful, but in a in a nice way. Like there was always this intention of we want to do the right thing, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think you always get. Um, and I was quite surprised by that. I think everybody on the IBM side who was involved in the integration um, always had very clear and very well, you know, intended um, motivations. Like they were they wanted to make this work. Um, and it was it was it was a nice thing to be a part of, you know. Like I said, it was painful at times, but you know, you never felt like um, you were doing it for the wrong reasons. Did a lot of your you know people that are under you sort of come to you for advice and and you know obviously people fear change, don't they? So I imagine there's a lot of people that were worried and came to you for advice. And how did you manage that? Because I'm sure that was very challenging with all the people you had. And what was how big was Blue Wolf UK at that point? Sorry to go back a little bit. So we grew a lot right as the acquisition happened. So I think when we kind of settled down, we were at about 120. Wow. Yeah. Through yeah. five. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's good growth. <laughs> yeah. Not bad. It wasn't bad. Um, yeah, it was difficult, I would say, in those days because, you know, you, you don't know. Um, and I think as a, as a leader, every, you know, everybody does come to you and they're like, what's going to happen? What, you know, how is this going to work? And, 
and it's interesting. I think you get to see different sides of people, right? The, the things that people are worried about. Like I kind of in the beginning made this laundry list of things that I thought people were going to be worried about. And I was very off, you know, I was right in some cases, but you know, people that's such a personal thing for people and you know so when you think about like job security and things like the natural things that i thought people were gonna want to hear about actually people were kind of like you know what i i'm worried about my bike to work scheme and like am i gonna <laughs> give that up and you know things like maternity leave and you know so it's it was just such a personal i think um conversation in in, in every one of those and i think the difficulty is you can't lie to people and you don't know you know, so you kind of have to just, my my way of managing it, which, you know, I will be the first to put my hand up and admit I did not always manage those messages correctly. Um, but it was just to be transparent, say everything you know, and be honest that you don't know stuff. Because that's what, that's what people want, right? They need to trust that there is ambiguity in this process and that you don't know, yeah. but you will find out. And, you know, you've got their motivations you know driving you to to understand what the answers are and from the again from the outside looking in it looks like one of the better acquisitions because you, you see some of the other ones where the smaller company that there's hardly anybody left after a year or so uh, yeah doesn't seem to be the case with the ibm blue wolf um takeover so that that something must have gone well it's um i think now knowing what i know i will tell you every acquisition is hard there's no kind of secret sauce of you know how to do this. It's just about people, which makes it really, really difficult. Um, and I think we were really good at managing people through that change. And I think the reality with, with some of these acquisitions is, you know, people, people want to be part of different companies, right? The people mm -hmm. who joined Blue Wolf didn't necessarily want to be part of a big enterprise. And so those people should go, can go, you know, did go at, at certain points in time. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's, you know, you've got to do right by everybody and you've got to let everybody have that personal conversation and decide, you know, what's best for the company, what's best for their personal careers. Um, and I think if you're doing that, then I think the people who should stay do. Yeah. And, you know, it all kind of works itself out. I think it's it's how you manage those individual conversations, which which is difficult and time consuming, to be completely honest. <laughs> and mainly, it's, um, quite a lot of it's about, I suppose, communication, because people fear the unknown. So if, if you're communicating well with them, and like you say, hand-holding them through the process, then it makes your job a lot easier. Um, you do hear of somewhere people literally have no idea what is going yeah. on. And I can imagine that that would be quite scary for people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So the time came at some point after 13 years, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how accurate your LinkedIn is, but you, you decided <laughs> to then take the leap. I did. Mm. I did. We had kind of, it, it was a logical point for me because we had come to the end of the, integra the integration period. Um, and I had kind of, like in the beginning, I think mostly, and this was a personal thing, this wasn't anything that was pushed on to me. Like I kind of felt this um, obligation in some ways to get people through this. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I had hired a lot of these people, right? And, and a lot of them had worked for me for a very long time. And I wanted to make sure that I got everybody to the other side of this in a career they were happy with, with benefits and salaries and things that, you know, worked for them. Um, and the, for me on a personal level, there was a massive transition because this came, Blue Wolf went from being my baby, <laughs> you know, to, to being someone else's baby. And, and 
you know, there were a lot of emotional points in that process where, you know, I, I struggled to be completely honest. Um, but I, I started to realize that actually my role was completely different, you know, and it, and it should be totally different. I needed to get people through this process. I needed to set the organization up for growth, but actually I'm probably not the person to take Salesforce IBM to the next level because there's just too much legacy stuff there. You know what I mean? Like people, people look at me in a lot of ways as the old blue wolf, you know? And so I could kind of feel through this process, you know, people getting defensive, people getting defensive of blue wolf and, and some of the kind of legacy culture things and getting defensive of me. Um, and I just thought at some point this, this needs to progress and I'm probably going to hold it back weirdly. Um, yeah. and, and so it was a, it was a sad decision for me. I've been there, you know, ages and I, and I love blue wolf and I always will. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to be in a world where, I was working in a big corporation and, and the acquisition actually taught me that. Cause I think, you know, it's only kind of when you get pushed into certain situations that you realize what you don't want. Yeah. Um, and, and part of me really wanted to get back to, you know, early days blue of growing something, you know, being on the ground. Um, so that was a big part of the decision, but yeah, I would say probably half of it was, a you know, I felt like I, I needed to let this go for, for the greater good of, mm. of, you know, letting IBM take over and letting this thing transition and evolve into something that was completely different than it, it could have been if I was if I was there. And that brings us almost up to date because the timing of that you leaving Blue Wolf coincided with COVID. COVID. <laughs> oh my God! I know that was that was yeah. It's, <laughs> it was terrible timing actually. Well, I had decided kind of in late. Um, 2019 that I was going to leave um, and it was just about kind of figuring out how to do that in the best way um, and then my mom died that December and oh. it kind of threw everything out of whack for a bit um, so I didn't actually end up leaving IBM until March and the funny thing is I you know I resigned on a Friday um, I think Saturday night so this was when COVID was really starting to pick up mm-hmm. Saturday night IBM sent an email out to everybody saying offices are closed don't come in on Monday. Um, so yeah, the funny thing about it is people still have not been back into the office since I've left, <laughs> which is quite weird because um, it's been almost a year. But yeah, I I left and I remember like certain people were like, oh, do you want to take it back? Do you think you should come back? Like maybe this is a bad, maybe this is a bad time to do this. Um, and to be honest, it had just taken me so long mentally to get to that stage that, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't go back, um, but it was it was quite scary. I um, the funny thing about it was I I had all of these plans for my garden leave because, you know, I haven't in the whole of my career I've never had you know a month off to just you have no obligations. So it's like I was going to be a lady who lunched. I was going <laughs> to, oh. <laughs> um, and I had had like this whole kind of yeah version in my head of of how this month was going to go, and then we were in lockdown, and I was yeah at home doing nothing eating from a bowl and crying (laughs) yeah basically basically and you never got your big leaving party did you which is no uh, no it was it's quite it was a quite weird situation because i never even got to say bye to people Mm. um yeah yeah quite strange you're definitely owed a big celebration at some point I'm hoping somebody buys me a glass of wine at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll get more than a glass. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, so obviously, then we we touch on, you know, obviously you wanted to go back and build something. So the capita thing was going to be that, wasn't it? But I think again, from correct, COVID kind of put put pay to that as well, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, and that was there was always this kind of conversation about you know what does going and building something mean, um, and probably prior to my mom dying the, the conversation was much more geared toward let's you know let's start something let's let's um create our own kind of company which had always been really the intention um, oh, there she goes. sorry <laughs> very ferocious um we'll, we'll interview her next <laughs> um but yeah, so I wanted, I, I, I always secretly wanted, you know, to, to start something. And we had had conversations over the years about doing that. And then kind of when all of that happened, it, it just didn't feel like the right time. And I had had a, a conversation with Ishmael at Capita where, you know, they were looking to start a Salesforce practice. And, you know, he was like, look, don't be silly. Don't do it with your money. Come, you know, do it here. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of seemed like the best of both worlds. You know, I was going to get to start from scratch again. You know, I was going to get to kind of hire who I wanted and, and build methodologies and, you know, practices again. And that was going to be amazing. Um, but of course, you know, I started at the beginning of COVID. And so we had put together all of these kind of business plans around, you know, what our hiring plan was going to be. We were talking about acquiring people. Um, but, you know, that all kind of fell by the wayside as COVID got deeper and deeper and it took me about six weeks to realize actually this isn't gonna happen is it because the funny thing is I started right after Easter and I again naively thought this is gonna be fine this is gonna be fine we're gonna you know let's start hiring people we started you know getting interviews lined up and then like slowly but surely I realized how insane this pandemic was getting I kind of thought it was gonna be just a really short-lived thing so like it's gonna be fine you know, they'll find a, they'll find a cure and we'll be back at work in a month. Um, and as time went on, I, I started to get more realistic. And we kind of just came to a point where it was like, look, you know what? Capita doesn't, Capita doesn't and shouldn't be investing tons of money in a Salesforce practice. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't be starting anything new right now. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and that's okay. And we can kind of just chalk this up to bad timing and, you know, remain friends. And, and we are. I, I still you know, consider Ishmael one of my mentors. If I was in a really tough position, I would call him and, and get him to give me some tough love. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was kind of just, it was one of those things. It was unfortunate um, that the timing didn't work out. But in some ways, I'm super grateful for it because I think had that not happened, I probably would never have had the guts to do what we're doing now. You kind of... You, you think everything happens for a reason, but it was it was almost that situation that's that made me realize, you know what? We should have just done this from the beginning. Like yeah. if yeah. there ever is a time, this is probably the worst and the best time to do this. And so let's just go for it. Um, now for people listening then, so what is this? What, what is oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and I'll talk a little bit about how we how we got started because that that um definitely lends itself to the story. But so we now operate Solution Junkies, which is a newly appointed um, SI in the Salesforce ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I got quite I got quite lucky because as this whole kind of capita thing was happening, um, Gareth had already kind of corralled people into public sector accounts because we we actually thought you know we're going to bring a bunch of people to capita right so let's get let's get people lined up let's get people kind of 
operating in the roles that we want them in. Um, so by the time I decided to leave, I think he already had eight people billing full time. So it was all, it was really already an organization, which was nice for me to just kind of be able to to step into that because you know it wasn't frankly starting something from scratch. You know, you're starting mm-hmm. something with with a pretty um, with a pretty hefty launching pad. So it was it was nice because it it was probably perfect for me because I. I'm not massively, massively risk adverse, but you know, I don't, I'm not stupid either. You know what I mean? I'm not just pouring all my money into, into something, not knowing if it's going to work or not. And this was kind of a, a good halfway house where you think, okay, we've got, we've got a bit of run rate here. You know, we've got some time to get, you know, get our stuff together, to get our go-to-market strategy together, to get, you know, our internal kind of structures figured out. Um, And yeah, I was, I was super lucky to come into a team that, was already running you know and it was just about carrying that baton forward fantastic and, and when you say we and gareth for these for the sake of the listeners who are you referring to <laughs> so gareth is my business partner he also lives in my home <laughs> and he's sometimes referred to as my husband <laughs> <laughs> and if it, if it's really good <laughs> yeah exactly it depends on the day some some days we might just be business partners <laughs> And, how are you finding sorry how are you finding it i was about to ask the what, dynamics the, oh, between the, the husband yeah, thing and the pair of you with the COVID thing <laughs> i mean i'll be honest i wish we had a bigger house <laughs> so that's one thing um but we actually we're re- we are really lucky because we are quite we've worked together on and off in our you know different periods in our career and we love working together so that's the good thing and we're quite um we're quite opposite in a lot of ways i mean mostly financially like gareth wants to make money and save money and i want to spend money so that's quite a good <laughs> good balance there um, but yeah so that's what, the funny thing about it is that's probably the only thing that we ever fight about is just kind of you know where the money's going because um, i have all of, as you can imagine i've got all of these great marketing ideas <laughs> that yeah sometimes sometimes um get shot down rightfully so um but yeah the the work itself has been really good and in 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 some ways it's kind of been nice to be stuck at home because there's so much in starting a business that just bleeds into your evenings you know what I mean like all the stuff that you don't have to do or that I didn't have to do at least in in my day-to-day job but like invoicing and you know creating content and all of the stuff that happens outside of your kind of nine to five it's nice we don't have anything else to do so we might as well you know you don't feel like you're missing out on anything which is quite good and we, it's, it's enabled us to be quite intense. You know what I mean? Like there's been over the last couple of months, you know, the hours and, and the effort that we've put in. Um, I don't know. It wouldn't have been as easy if it wasn't well, no, in this you, environment. Like, you know, you've got family, you've got friends, and there's that guilt that you're not spending enough time there. Whereas at the moment, Completely. we just cannot do jealous. it. Yeah, so when we started Rod, it, we, it wasn't in the middle of a pandemic, was it? So we, we no. you, know, you had to do those things. But yeah, you're right. You've got the... You've got the got to juggle working in the business and working on the business and, and that that can be quite quite challenging like you say the the on the business stuff tends to tend to like you say bleed into the evenings and, and weekends and things doesn't it Still yeah and yeah dinner, dinner table or conversation is not about what we're doing this weekend suddenly it's about have you sent those invoices <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yes um. not having three meals a day at our desk where you're you're not um you know you're not getting away from your desk i don't know if you guys are in that in that situation but you know you need to need to get time out don't you as well yeah um how, how are you finding it you know with covid and everything like that how has it affected 
the way you work, the way that the future you see for solution junkies in terms of you know, things like go to an office. I mean, Blue Wolf are pretty, were they office orientated? Were they? Yeah, yeah. I was in the office every day. Hmm. So do, um, do you see a future doing that again? No, no. No, 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 not even close. It, it's interesting for me because I think in the beginning I missed the office so much. I, just because I'm, you know, I'm used to being in a big office surrounded by people and you can kind of just get stuff done in some ways a lot quicker because you can walk up to somebody's desk. Um, but I actually think I've I've transitioned over this period in that I've kind of flipped and gone the other way. Um, I find that you're so much more productive at home. Like for me... You know, sitting in an office means that everybody can come up to me <laughs> and yeah, ask questions yeah. all day long. And so you actually find that you get very little done. Um, whereas, like, if you look at the hours in the day and how, you know, how productive people are, I think it's amazing. Um, I do think it's quite intense and I don't think it can carry on in this way forever. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, people are working harder than they ever have in some cases. Um, and that, you know, there's got to be... A balance to that and I think as this goes on longer and longer people will start to to find that um that's my hope at least but I do I think we'll move to a hybrid um model I think most people will um I think it'll be kind of one of those situations where if you want to work from home absolutely do it if you want to be in an office you know a couple days a week you know that's absolutely fine there there will always be a space for an office in that you have to meet customers face to face in an ideal world. You know what I mean? You, you want to see the whites of people's eyes, I think. Um, but yeah, outside of that, you know, we would, I don't think we'd ever be in a situation where we would have a full-time office and expect everybody to come in every day. Like, you know, I look back at just the commuting time and it's one of those things you don't think about because you just do it every single day. Um, but yeah, you know, that's three hours out of my day. I don't spend on a train. How are you spending those three hours now? Are you, are you just working or are you doing other things? Well, it's funny you say that, Lee, because I, <laughs> I set a lot of um, goals. <laughs> I don't actually follow through with some of them, but in the beginning, I was like, this is going to be great because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use these hours in a different way and I'm going to start meditating. And yeah, I have, I have a laundry list of, of lockdown things that I hope to accomplish, which is still sitting there. Um, <laughs> but I am, I am striving to get better. Um, but no, my, my biggest problem is I've, I've developed really bad habits. Like, you know, I, most people, like most successful people say, you know, you get up and you have a routine and, um, and Gary's actually really good about this. He does, you know, he gets up straight away. He showers, he, you know, gets set for the day. Yeah. I have this, I've developed this terrible tendency of rolling over and picking up my phone. No, yeah. Yep. Mm, and then you start scrolling through and you're like, oh, I could, you know what? I could do that right now, actually. That, I'm going to answer this email. And then before you know it, it's like, crap, it's almost nine. And now I'm late. And like, I've got to take a shower, show up to my call looking like a homeless person. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I do need to, I do need to develop a better routine. Uh, but that is a work in progress. But there's something to aspire to. You can't have exactly, it. exactly. If I was perfect, Teresa, it'd be a disaster. <laughs> so yeah, I need a short-term goal. I mean, surely yeah. it's just too much for the world to cope with. <laughs> well, exactly. Agreed. I mean, what would Sheila do? Like, she would have. Uh, she'd have no one to aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, do, do you? Are you sticking to a sort of nine to five, or are you? Oh my god, no. All right. Do you find you're more productive? Are you a more of a later person then? I I'm sticking to probably an eight to eight. 
Um, but that's just because of the nature of, of where we are. Um, I actually find there are points in the day where I am, like I've started to structure my schedule a little bit better, like group the calls together. Because I think part of my problem was you've spread the calls out so much. Because in the beginning I thought, well, I need a break between calls because I don't want to just be back to back. But then you find actually you start something, you have a call, you pick it back up. Like you get to the end of the day and you're like, I've, I've looked at this thing 17 times and I've not actually progressed it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've definitely found work, you know, making my schedule work a little bit better for me and giving myself blocks of time to get stuff done has been much, much better. Um, but I think you can always be better. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I'm writing that down. It's good, good advice, to be fair, because I think I tend to just, just, just try and do everything at once. Um, I'm not good at that. Yeah, and then end up working quite late because you're then trying yeah. to finish off all these, you know, yeah. things that you've started and not quite completed. But um, but I, I think this is a learning curve for everybody, really. Um, you know, I suppose the vast majority of companies were used to being office-based, so people have to get used to it. Um, and I think in early lockdown, people were just using work, if they were fortunate enough to be in work, as a, an opportunity to make them so busy so they didn't yeah. think about the situation they're in. And I think maybe when summer rolls around again, people will want to go back outside and enjoy the weather. Um, so I think hopefully that work-life balance will come back to people. They'll realise that there is more to life than work. Yeah. <laughs> and they need to address both sides of their life and, and allow allow that to happen. But um, I agree. Well, and I also think that there is a, not to get on my soapbox, but I think <laughs> there is a... Um, a bit of onus on companies to force that to a certain extent because you know it's there I, I find especially in the beginning there were a lot of kind of publicizing of like wellness and oh work-life balance and things but yet you know you're scheduling meetings till all hours of the evening so it's like it doesn't you know you can't kind of talk out of both sides of your mouth and I think creating kind of corporate expectations around look everybody's going to take a lunch you know if you work here you don't you do not book a meeting between 12 and 1 or whatever the policy is I think if you look at Salesforce they've started to do these wellness days and I think they were giving people every other Friday off or one Friday a month you know just to kind of decompress um, which I think is brilliant but it's it takes, I think, in some cases, leadership mandating some of that to force people to change the habits because they're always going to feel like, okay, well, yes, I should do that, but actually everybody else is doing this. So, I, you know, if I'm, I'm going to be considered lazy if I'm not kind of pushing as hard as everyone else. Yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've just sort of, um, I suppose, moved to a bit more of a flexible. It's something that we're, we're trying out to kind of give people some say over how they spend the time they use in their own home because we have to respect that people are living with other people they could be with children and the nine to five when you can go to an office and shut the door and leave is not there anymore so you have to almost put up a I suppose a a, you know a virtual barrier around your home life and your work life but respect that there are other people in the house as well so we're just encouraging people to work when they feel that they they can work um and you know without any monitoring we, we don't really care what they're doing uh you know it if they go like, for a longer like, lunch or that sort of yeah, thing we the don't early care blue wolf well, you mentioned then it was a they're obviously so ahead of the curve in terms of we don't we don't really we don't micromanage you we no. trust you to get the job done and like you said earlier on but if you prove me wrong then then we'll micromanage you and, and that's um that's kind of where we're at now yeah but, but blue wolf were doing that years ago so fair play to them uh, <laughs> and, and 
I think a lot of companies are like that. Obviously, with the job yeah. we do, we speak to a lot of people, we speak to a lot of companies, and, and we do ask them, what's your plan after all of this when you go back to being in office? And some companies are still adamant, oh, yeah, we want everyone in the office, nine to five, in this <laughs> location. You think, oh, you've got you to make it tough to find people. So I have nothing yeah. to sell. Well, space, let alone. A year's a long time to get used and they might to have working. A, I appreciate they might have a long lease that, they, that, they, that they've got to um, yeah. and stuff. But um, I think a lot of companies might struggle if, they, if they're going to say that to people. Oh, completely. Because, you know, to your point, Teresa, a year is a long time to get used to something. And I think people have, on a personal level, figured out how to make it work for them, you know, in, in large part. And they're not going to want to give that up. You know, you look at, like, even I was talking to a girlfriend of mine who is a, a mom and she's she's struggling to, <laughs> to be doing homeschooling. But, you know, she was saying, she's like, as hard as it is, I've realized how much time I miss out in commuting and things like that, that I don't want to give that back. You know, I, I now have realized that I can balance these things at home um, and I should. And, you know, I think, again, it's not until you force somebody to change that they realize that they can change. Um, and I agree. I don't think a lot of people are going to want to go back. No. And I don't think they should. There's no, you know, for for economic reasons, for sustainability reasons, you know, it's it's not a bad thing to not have everybody commuting into London every day. Yeah, absolutely. Environmental as well. Yeah. There's so many benefits from, I mean, you, you've taken it off a tangent, but you, you know, you hear about in the news, some poor child has died from car fumes and stuff like that. We, d we don't need to do it. Why should we do it? Exactly. And let people stay at home and, you know, have the benefits that that will give them. But like you say, the flexibility, people want to get together. They want to bounce off of their team. You know, teammates. Yeah, yeah, completely. That in the office environment. So, yeah, definitely. I'm wary, as always. We've gone over an hour, but, but I do, I do want to end with the question that I usually end with, which is basically, what are you most excited about? Um, I, I ordinarily, well, you know, in, in the context of Salesforce, but it could also be, you know, other things. But is there something about the future you're really excited about? Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, aside from being able to go to the pub, you mean? <laughs> at some point right. um no that's what you're looking forward to <laughs> <laughs> no i think i mean this is going to be a little bit of a of a selfish one but i think um you know in terms of what we are trying to do at solution junkies you know in the world of salesforce i'm really hopeful that that will make a change amongst the partner ecosystem because our our whole model is yes we want to deliver successful projects um and and we always will and and we will always be putting our customers first but we want to balance that with having a greater impact with giving back and and with fundamentally kind of structuring the organization to be focused on that and i do think especially in the world of salesforce we could all be doing that and i'm hoping that by us kind of setting up this company and, and proving that, you know, those two things being profitable and, you know, and giving back um, to the world, they're not mutually exclusive and you can balance them. And it does offer not only benefits for society, but for employees and, and, and beyond. Um, and I'm hoping that kind of sparks a, a greater movement because I do think there's more as a, as a partner ecosystem that we could do to help each other. And there's more that we could just do to help the greater good of the world you know if, if we stop kind of focusing entirely you know internally and and looking at you know our people and our processes and and start to pick our head up and and look at what we can do beyond that um i'm hoping it'll it'll be the start of a, of a shift 
That's so, good. I mean, yeah. we'll be a co- we'll, we might be a company that'll copy you. Then is there any any specific things you're you're putting in place at the moment? I mean, because I know you've got the one 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 model from Salesforce. Is it a similar? Yeah. So we we've got a couple of things, and and actually part of this was in the beginning. You know, when we kind of came up with this concept, I think most of it, to be honest, was birthed out of COVID. Right. I think we were all kind of in jobs where we felt like, oh my god, this has to mean more. Do you know what I mean? Like I can't sit at my laptop from nine to five and just configure Salesforce we've, we've got to have more purpose in this um, and I think the struggle was okay if, if you buy into that concept then how, how do you actually make it happen because we've all kind of worked at organizations where you have give back initiatives um, and we kind of looked at why those don't always you know come to fruition and a lot of time it's because it's the first thing to get put on the back burner you know a, a project goes south yes I'm not volunteering <laughs> you know I've got I'm working 80 hours a week um, so you know a big struggle for us was how do you build that into the structure of the company and 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 to the heart of what people do day in and day out and so the first kind of thing that we came up with was this concept of projects for purpose mm-hmm. so we looked at you know our organization and we said what what will always trump everything priority wise projects and clients right and so we said okay how do you work giving back into the scheme of a project so that it doesn't get left behind um and Projects for Purpose is, is based a lot on the 111 pledge, but it's kind of taking it um, a step further. So for every project, we will give 2% of our profit to the client's charity of choice. Um, and then instead of doing a big dinner or a big kind of go live party at the end, we'll spend um, two days at that charity um, in whatever capacity. So sometimes, you know, it'll be building bikes and sometimes it'll be helping them with Salesforce. But, you know, establishing really early on with the client that, our goal is yes to deliver you the successful project, but also it's to support this charity that you feel really passionate about, and and everything that we kind of do leads us to to both ends. Um, and we're hoping that will create a better bond with our client, but also you know it motivates the staff. It 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 gives you a bigger purpose beyond just kind of launching a system. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think, especially in COVID times, you know where we haven't been able to get together, like you know we haven't had a whole group meeting in person, um, you know, since we started. And, you know, it's how do you create a culture in that environment? And part of what we found is, you know, rallying behind this concept of giving back has been really amazing, you know, because people, quite frankly, get tired of the Zoom calls and the wine tastings. And, you know, there's only so much you can kind of do with booze, I think. Um, Whereas we found like, so we kind of rally every month around a different cause. So in the fall, we all did... um, race for the cure and we all did in our own kind of neighborhoods you know we all did the 5k and it was one of those days it was amazing like you kind of you saw people with kids doing it really early (laughs) and then the what you know the whatsapp group is going and people are clocking their times and you've got pictures and you know people are doing it with their kids and by the end of the day like all the results were in and you just felt amazing about you know the group of people that you were with um and i will say like you know it's you feel more bonded to these people having in some cases never met them and doing this thing together than the biggest night out, you know, um, there's, and there's no hangover involved. So. <laughs> and, and it's the common cause again, isn't it? Exactly. It's, it's just rallying people behind something that, you know, collectively you can believe in and, and it's got a bit of purpose, you know? I think one of the strangest, but, 
probably nicest things that have come out of COVID, if you can say that, um, is the fact that everybody is in it together and it's almost like we are all fighting the same battle. And, you know, it's something that you think would have just trailed off after a couple of weeks, but seems to be there. It's just this camaraderie that people have around we've we've got to help our fellow neighbour and there's more volunteering going on and things like that. So certainly the the, the bigger cause, the giving back is um you know it's a it's a really way to a good way to go when it comes to creating team bonding because everybody's on the same side. So I think it's exactly. amazing. Definitely. Brilliant a brilliant um idea. I've written all that down as well. So we'll see if we can come up with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you need any advice, Lee, I've done a ton of research. So there's this concept of being a social enterprise, which is, you know, all about balancing profit and and give back. But I've done yeah, I've done loads of research. So I'm I'm happy to to help you write the book. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I will take you up on that definitely. Um I'm obviously I'm so grateful it's not well, an hour and twenty minutes. It's <gasps> well quick. Yeah. I still don't feel like I feel like we just, you know, haven't haven't gone too deep in things, but contrary. Well I, I was just gonna ask if it's possible to slip one last question in at the end. Of course. Here would be do you have any sort of comments or advice that you would give for people looking to start you know to start their career in Salesforce? What would be your pearls of wisdom? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think, to be honest, I think being in the world of Salesforce takes curiosity at its core. That's, you know, that is the fundamental to make, you know, a good admin or a good consultant. Um, and there is so much to learn. And and luckily, you know, with Trailhead and other things, you know, there's so much resource out there. Um, so I would say definitely take advantage of the resource, but go beyond just the kind of online module. So there's a, a mentoring program, for example, that Salesforce um, has where it couples you with people who are active in the industry. So a lot of our guys are mentors on it um, for people who are just starting out their career. But take advantage of everything um, and and push yourself to, especially in those mentoring conversations, push yourself to to create ways of getting practical experience. Because the reality is, if you're new to Salesforce, you're teaching yourself, you know, you're not going to be able to walk into a client or into, um, you know, an interview and say, I've got all of this Salesforce experience. But actually, if you've given yourself little scenarios, um, or you've asked, you know, the community for scenarios, um, and you've built some of this stuff out, if you walked in and you showed me you know, I've taken everything, but actually look at these five orgs that I've built for these, you know, different industries and different problems I'm trying to solve. I mean, we would get five minutes into that interview and you'd be hired, <laughs> um, you know, because it, it it shows so much. And I think that's really the way to learn. And I think everybody kind of internalizes the, the modules in their own way. And I think applying them in, in some kind of a practical way shows, you know, whoever you're speaking to that you actually understand it. Um, it's, it's the easiest way to translate what you've learned. Um, so, yeah, I would say take advantage of all the resources out there um, and just try to create as much practical experience for yourself as you can. Fantastic. Thank Brilliant. you very much. Brilliant tip. Thank you very much. Um, all right. Thanks, you guys. This was great. Well, let, as I say, let's you have anything else you want to say. We, we shall... Um say thank you very much and yeah, it's um, been we'll, absolutely delightful <laughs> we'll, we'll obviously um share links to solution junkies and stuff i know it's going to be findable you're a very findable person on linkedin but we'll do all that so people can see you um, yeah but, it's been an absolute pleasure mate and um thank you very much and, and hopefully solution junkies will go on to be Bigger than Blue Wolf, let's say that. that I agree. Us, that is the plan. I completely yeah. agree. Well, I think with you heading it up, there's there's no danger of that not happening. Well, oh, no pressure, Teresa. Thanks for that. 
Oh dear. Mira, thanks very much, mate. And um, we'll speak to you again soon, hopefully. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks again to Vera Loftus for spending time with us today. You can find Vera on LinkedIn or by visiting her website, solutionjunkies.co.uk. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe and hope you can join us again soon.